0: Our reading for today comes from Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So uh, I just want to piggyback for a moment off of what Ashley said. This week we begin home groups. We have uh, our home group questions. They're out in the lobby uh, out there today. If you want to grab them on your way out, or you can grab them before. If you want to scoot out and grab them before my message, you can feel free to do that now. Uh, and then you can then you can basically know what I'm going to say, and you don't need to listen, right? Not exactly. Uh, if you uh, if you have not already been accosted by somebody and want to sign up for a small uh, a, a home group, please let me know. Uh, we really think they're important, and uh, we want to make sure everybody is connected and in a group. All right, all right. So, uh, welcome to Grace Community. This is the first week of a series we're calling Uncommon Generosity. Uncommon Generosity. We're calling it that because the first followers of Jesus, those people we read about in our teaching text for today out of the book of Acts, lived out a level of both financial and practical generosity that was so extreme that from the perspective of their culture, they looked crazy. And I just want to emphasize this. They looked nuts, right? We could have called this series "Crazy Generous," but I wouldn't. I don't want to do that because one, I don't like the way it sounds, and I care about things like that. And two, I would be scared that people would put weird things in the offering, like rubber chickens. I don't know. Uh, the point is, is that the early church was generous. They were. They were not commonly generous. And we read about that in our passage for today in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And I just want to read it one more time for us, just to kind of uh, bring it back up to the surface. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the story of the very first followers of Jesus. This is the story of how they lived. This is the story of how their normal lives functioned. Now, notice the areas of their lives that they lived with a kind of uncommon generosity. First, with their time, which might be harder for most of us than anything else. Every day they met together. Every day they met together. What if you had to see me every single day? You would be so lucky. But every day they met together. They were generous with their time. They were generous with their time. They were generous, number two, with their table. It says that every day when they met together, they broke bread together. They feasted together. They ate together. They ate with one another. They were generous with their table. They were in one another's homes, like, I don't know, a home group, and they were eating together, right? This is what they were doing in the average daily, in their average and daily life. And third, they were generous with their possessions, and with their money. In verse 44, it says this, all the believers were together. held They held everything in common, selling property and possessions so that no one in the body had need. Now, we can read this without understanding how money and possessions were handled in the Roman world, and we can kind of just gloss over it. We can. We can say, that sounds great, right? That, that would be wonderful, but that's not that's not our time. The way they did things was not the way we do things. Uh, That was an exception to a rule that doesn't really apply. Or we could say just, I don't know if that was even a good thing for them to do. Maybe everybody did that. They were an agrarian society where everybody just kind of shared everything anyways. If, If we don't understand what's happening kind of in the background culture of the Roman world at this time, we can kind of gloss over it and just say, oh, it wasn't all that radical the way they were living. It wasn't all that extreme. There was nothing about what they were doing that was particularly interesting to me or to my life. But when we look at the the background of how an average Roman citizen lived in the Roman world at this time, things kind of come into very, very stark relief. Jerusalem, where these first followers of Jesus were, was located in the Roman province of Judea at this time. So they were most certainly in the Roman world. And in the Roman world, money was absolutely everything. Money was everything. They printed coins, right? We still have those coins around. Money was everything. So much so that in the Roman world, your status in society was directly determined by how much money you had. They actually put you into a class system based on how much money you had. You had a formal title in society that you had based on your income, your wealth, the main reason the Romans were able to take over the known world at this time, at this, and this is what they did, the Romans just kind of marched all over the world and took everything over. The main reason they were able to do that was not their organization, it was not their technology, it was their ability to raise money. Romans were great, great, great at raising money. And the tool they used to do this was the Roman census, was the Roman census. The Roman census was their most powerful tool of conquest, actually. It was not their shields, which were really cool and new. It wasn't their, it wasn't their legions, uh, their, their military strategy. It was the census, because a nation can do nothing without raising some funds. And the census functioned as the, the Roman world's primary fundraiser. Every so often in the Roman world, a census would be taken for the purpose for actually what is two purposes, twofold. The, uh, the first is to count the number of people in a given area, in a given Roman province, in order to levy taxes against them. So this is basically why, we have a cen- why we're going to have a census in a, a year and a half here too, because we want to know how much we want to tax people. You can read about this Roman, a Roman census like this in Jesus' birth narrative. Surprise, surprise. This is why Joseph and Mary were going back to the city of Bethlehem. God used the Roman census to get the Messiah back into the town that was prophesied that he would be born in, actually. So Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem so that they can be counted, so that they can be taxed appropriately. So they wanted an accurate count for tax accounting purposes. This is what the Romans were doing there. So that's the first purpose of the Roman census. But the second purpose of the Roman census and what's important for us this morning is that the census was taken to determine what specific social class of Roman citizen you should be placed in. So in the Roman census, they actually, it was like when when we have a census in two years or whatever, it was like if they were like, okay, now give us your bank account information. (laughs) That's basically what they're asking. And they would slot Roman citizens into different strata of society, into classes based on what the census data said. Romans, and Roman society was basically broken down into five categories. We have this on the screen for you this morning. <clears throat> so the first class is the senatorial class. This is where we get our word senate from, right? These were the senators of Roman society, and they were the highest class of people. They, ma- they were people who made... Um, or their currency, the S is their currency. The next class is the equestrian class. Now they were called equestrians because this was the primary class of people who had horses that could be contributed to the army for war, right? So if you had some horses, you were pretty pretty well-to-do, and so you were an equestrian class. The top two classes, the equestrians and the senatorial class were the two classes that had the most political clout because you couldn't run for political office and Rome, at Rome before the Caesars, was a semi-democratic system. You could only ro- run for government if you were a part of one of those two classes, and you couldn't be in those two classes unless you made that much money, right? So the, the, then the next step before below that is the plebeians or commoners. These people tended to be farmers who owned some type of land, uh, and there were there were actually there were five different strata of plebeians as well. So. Uh, and those were the people who made that much money. Underneath that, you had the landless poor, which was the proletary. You might be, you might be familiar with this in the uh, in the French Revolution, the proletariat, those type of ideas. Uh, all, all these things are in common in some way. Uh, and they were people who made below 11,000, and then below them, you had servants and slaves. Servants and slaves were not technically Roman citizens. If you didn't have uh, possessions, you couldn't be a Roman citizen technically. But uh, they're in there because they're important to the society. So this is, this is the basic social, social structure of Rome, right? This is what it was. These classes also came along with political power. Uh, you got certain amount of votes based on where you were in this strata. What class you were in actually gave you more of a say, more of a vote in society. So if you were on the low end, if you didn't have much money, you didn't even get a vote, right? You didn't even get a say. The higher you ascended on the ladder, the more votes you got, the more power you got, the more status you got, the, you, as soon as you got into the equestrian or senatorial classes, you could really begin to move and to shake, to change some stuff, right? To make your society the way you wanted, to, wanted it to be. And in Rome, if you wanted to be influential, if you wanted to be important, you, if you wanted to be politically involved, you needed money. You needed money. And Roman society was a system tailor-made to make sure that no one gave any money to anyone, right? This system, if you understand it, was tailor-made to make sure that no one shared anything with anyone. You kept what you had. You amassed it. You tried to multiply it because you needed to ascend the ladder of social structure, didn't you? You wanted to become more influential and more powerful, and this is what the Roman system was built to do. It was built to make people want to climb that ladder. It was a dog-eat-dog world in Rome, and, we were, and if you wanted to do anything in society, you needed to attain, you needed to acquire, you needed to multiply what you had. You did not give it away. You would think, and then into this culture, into this context, comes a group of people who, by virtue of their staggering generosity and their desire to share everything that they had, completely opt out of the Roman system entirely. They said, oh, that cultural system of social social ladder climbing, we're just going to opt out of it entirely by giving everything away. You would think a group like that would peter out pretty quick, wouldn't you? You would think a group like that wouldn't get very far in the Roman world, but here we are, right, 2,000 or so years later, talking about these people who embrace a posture of radical generosity because they said they followed this man named Jesus, named Jesus, who, by the way, they also said died on a cross and was raised three days later and was actually seated as the true Lord and King of the universe, right? They also said this. And the question we have to ask this morning is, why? Why? Why for these early Christians was generosity such a hallmark, such, a, such an integral part of their life together? What was it about generosity that became such a central piece of what they did and who they were? What was it about following Jesus that made these people live this way, is the question. Because wouldn't it be nice if following Jesus was not so wrapped up in this kind of generous life stuff, right? Wouldn't it be nice if all you had to do was believe some stuff about a guy who died on a cross and rose from the dead and keep all your stuff and ascend the social ladder, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Why does the way of Jesus for these early Christians lay claim not just to their immortal souls, but to their physical lives and resources as well? Why is that? uh, Earlier this year, we spent some significant amount of time in the Sermon on the Mount, if some of you remember that. Many of us will probably remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' defining teaching. It's uh, It's his kind of tour de force. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like Moses. He goes up the mountain, he sits down, and he gives this grand message about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the thing that Jesus taught about the most. It was the thing he talked about the most. But basically, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is all about what life lived under the rule and reign of God should look like. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about, you guessed it, money. He talked, he talked about it a, a fair amount. And one of the things he says in Matthew 6 is of uh, particular interest to us this morning. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. He is teaching about a life lived under the dome of God's authority and what that life should look like. Right? This is what he's saying. And he says that money, if you let it, will be your God. It'll be your God. That, you, that, that, in fact, you cannot serve both God and money. Loving money will make you hate God, in fact, Jesus teaches. Later, in, actually in Luke's gospel, Jesus is talking to a guy that is called the rich young ruler who loves money too much. And he, he walks away from Jesus. He's invited to be Jesus' disciple and then he walks away. Uh, because he loves his money too much. And Jesus, after this interaction with the rich young ruler, turns to his disciples and he says this, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right, the kingdom of God, than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Which is a way of saying what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, that if you love money, if you serve and worship it, then you cannot, or at least won't want to, live in the kingdom of God. Jesus is actually quite clear about this throughout the Gospels. This isn't, these aren't the only two examples of Jesus teaching on this. Jesus basically says that money, money, possessions, things, acquisition, is the primary competitor for people's hearts. The primary competitor. There is no greater competitor for the heart of humans in our world than money. Jesus says this. Jesus deals a lot with it in the He deals with a lot of kind of moral issues in the gospels. He addresses issues like sexuality. He addresses pride, right? He addresses other forms of idolatry. But Jesus says that the love of money, or what he calls mammon, which is an Aramaic word for money, what is, this, this mammon or this resource or this possession or this money is a direct competitor to the love of God in the human heart. And the reason for this is that over and over and over, we see that money and possession set themselves up in our lives as God's. And then that money promises, whether overtly or covertly, to meet all our needs, right? This is what it does. It, It sets itself up as a God in our lives based on our experience, based on our culture, based on whatever. And then it promises, resource, money, promises to meet all our needs, doesn't it? How many times have we thought to ourselves ah if I only had a little more bit more money everything would be okay right we think this if I only had a few more thousand in the in the savings account then I could I could relax then right if only I had that dress or that pair of sunglasses or that car or that house or lived in the right neighborhood then 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 I could be happy it's a lie It's a lie. It's a lie we believe, isn't it? It's a lie all of us believe. Money and possessions have this way, don't they, of settling down into our hearts and becoming an ultimate thing for us, of becoming the type of thing that affects our moods, the way we treat our kids, our parents, our friends, that determines how and why we work, that that affects basically the, the sum total of our lives. And can you blame us, really? Can you blame us? Because we live in America. We don't live in Rome, right? We live in America. And the government does not necessarily use a census to put different Americans in different class systems. But we certainly do that in our hearts, don't we? I think we do. American culture uniformly believes that attaining more money and more wealth is always, always better. This is American culture. There are some exceptions to this rule, right? Like Warren Buffett's like, I'm going to give all my money away. And everybody's like, can you give it to me? Right? Like, you know, like impoverished countries are great and all, but I could use it. This is what we think because this is the culture that we swim in and we are preoccupied by a materialist culture in this country. We love money, and we believe by leveraging our money to acquire more things, we can make ourselves happy. This is what we believe. This is why most college students are going to college right now, to make money, right? And we can be so preoccupied with it, And while in America, I don't think we bow, we don't literally bow down to our bank accounts, right? There's not a group of people with, like, prayer mounts outside of U.S. Bank right now. That's not how it works. But I defy you to go to the mall the next time and see what those people are doing there and not see it in some way, shape, or form as worship, right? We live in a culture that preconditions us to make money the center of our worshiping lives. And this is true. And this is, what, this is what Douglas Jones says about the teachings of Jesus on money. Uh, he uses the word mammon here a lot. Mammon, again, remember, is just an Aramaic word for money. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God, that God even has a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Jesus understands that the antithesis of, or a contrast between God's way and Mammon's way was the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left and right or liberal conservative or the envious and the entrepreneur or the Christian and the Muslim. Jesus didn't make Mammon just a side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small ideas. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. So these first Christians living in a culture of luxury, relative safety, affluence, social progress, these first Christians who followed the way of Jesus living in this society said, Oh, no man, no. All that stuff you think that life is all about, climbing the political ladder, wealth, military conquest, social status, we don't in fact think that that's what life is about at all, right? So we're going to surrender our lives and our wills and our, and our resources over to God. We seek the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Rome, in essence. And, the most ta- and as the most tangible expression of that surrender, they gave Actually, they adopted a radical social ethic of generosity. To shrink it down and just say they gave is too small of a thing. Generosity was not a thing that they did every once in a while. It was a way of life. And they made sure that no one in their community, no one in what they began calling the family of God ever had need. They began to practice this uncommon generosity. And throughout the history of the church, whenever a group of people really catch a passion for Jesus and his kingdom vision, do you know what they begin to do? They begin to give too, with their lives. Because you see, this is not a message about how, as individuals, we need to give more money to the church. Um, I'm good with that, if you want to, but but that's not what this message is about. It's really not. This message... Is about how a group of people gathered under the name of Jesus should live the entirety of their lives. You know, a message about giving is re- really easy. Actually, a lot of churches do that. This message is about why the church, why the Christian community is meant to embrace a more embrace a more holistic holistic holistic, holistic ethic of generosity. Because you can give, and you should give, both to the church and social organizations and people who, who are in need around you, but it was not the generosity of a few solitary individuals in the early church that transformed the world and built the kingdom, right? It wasn't a few people with the big checkbooks that pulled it out and made things happen. It wasn't even the fact that they, they had resource to use for stuff. It was, it was that a whole community that joined in this reality and, and pointed to, with their lives, the fact that a whole new world is opened because Jesus has ushered it in with his death and resurrection on the cross. And that everyone was invited into this new way of living and this new way of being called the kingdom of God, gathered under, the, under Jesus, under the head. You know, there was a church uh, that a friend of mine had a conversation in Colorado with a guy. And they were just—he was on vacation—and he struck up this conversation with this gentleman. And the uh, friend was on vacation with his family, you know, just doing the Colorado thing. And he struck up this conversation with their with this guy, and he, he he found out that this gentleman was on vacation with his entire church. And this wasn't like a small church. This wasn't like twenty-five people, right? This was uh, this church had been going through the Book of Acts, and they'd been reading this passage. And someone in their church decided, hey, the book of Acts says we're a family. Maybe we should just all go on vacation together this summer. Right? Like four, like 400 people. Uh, they read and listened and studied about the, the radical lives that these first Christians had and the way they lived in community. And one of them had this idea, let's go on vacation together, right? Let's do it. And and so they did. And now the people who had resource to 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 pay for the vacation, paid for their vacation. And then the people who had more than enough to pay for their vacation paid for some of the people who didn't have the resource to go on vacation, and they all went on vacation. (laughs) It's kind of a funny thing, but it illustrates my point. What What a beautiful kingdom witness, right? What a beautiful kingdom witness. God can and will use individual generosity, like we pray every week when we take up the offering, right? That, we, that God would use the, the resources that, that come in to build his kingdom in, in the Cedar Valley. We pray that. But do you know what transforms a community? Do you know what really plants the flag of kingdom generosity in a culture of more like the one we live in? Being a community of generosity is what does it. And so, as our church, Grace Community we want to be like that. We want to be like that. We want to cultivate hearts of generosity, but we, we don't want to do this as solitary individuals. We want to do it as a groundswell of kingdom-building, community-shaping generosity with, where each of us do what God is calling us to do, right? This is what we want to do. And this is part of why we have our 2018 Giving Initiative in the handout that you have um, you can read through it a little bit more, but we, we broke it down into three areas. The first being a current need, uh, and you can read about that there. Uh, the next being future uh, future ministry, and the third being a ministry partner in Iowa City. And here's what we're looking for here. This is the truth. We're not looking for heroes. We're not looking for giving heroes. We're not looking for a bunch of solitary individuals We're looking for the Spirit to do something incredible in our church. I'll just put it bluntly. I'm looking for the Spirit to do something incredible in our church. Something no one person or five people can take credit for. Because here's the thing about kingdom generosity. No one can take credit for it. No one can take credit for it. It is just a sovereign work of God in our midst. I'm looking and praying for God to turn us into a people like those first Christians, not just with this giving initiative, but in general, who are not just randomly generous, but who adopt a culture of kingdom generosity in our own culture, in this culture of consumption and more and money and possessions and greed and all of the things that are wrapped up in American culture. And that by adopting a a culture of Jesus-centered generosity, what we do is we point to the person of Jesus with our lives, with our communal lives. So when people look at our lives, they say, why do they take care of each other like that? Why are they loose with their resources? And we can point directly to the person of Jesus and say, because of him, because we worship him. Because we serve Jesus, and Jesus' people don't worship mammon. We worship Jesus, which means we use our resources that God has given us to build his kingdom. And there is no higher or more noble purpose for our resources. There really isn't. No 60-inch TV will ever be an adequate substitute for the kingdom of Jesus. I promise. And so for the rest of this series, the next two weeks, really, We're going to dig a little deeper into some of these issues together. We're going to, honestly, next week we're going to debunk, I think, some popular misconceptions about giving and why we give. As well as talking a bit more about what submitting our finances to Jesus can do in our hearts and in our lives and in the lives of other people today. And how embracing this posture can be as countercultural in America today as it was for the early church in Roman society. I think that we are going to, uh, I think we're going to leave it right there for the morning after one story, all right? So I had, a, I had a friend, a close friend, who moved to Waco, Texas after school, and he went to a church in Waco. Uh, now that would lead you to believe that they are a cult, but I promise you they were a church. Uh, and their pastor one day, preached on this very message, and he got done, and he said, okay, we're going to do that now, and everybody got very nervous, like everybody's getting nervous in the room right now, right, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do, everybody who has need, come forward, stand up here, and everybody who had need came forward and stand up and stood, and then he said, okay, everybody who has resource, come talk to them and take care of that, and everybody came forward, and they came, and they, they took care of it. Tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> moved hands that day. Tens of thousands of dollars moved hands that day. Uh, student loan debts were eradicated. People were freed from situations. People, pe- I, have a, I have a firm belief that people, some of the people who came forward as an act of service to God got free of their love of money, right? We're not going to do that today. You can take a deep breath. Everybody can calm down. But, but, what a, what a beautiful kingdom vision that is. What a beautiful kingdom vision that is, isn't it? What a beautiful thing to be a people who don't love money but love Jesus and leverage our resource on behalf of the kingdom. That leverage our resource on behalf of the kingdom. We all love money in some way, shape, or form. It's in each and every one of our hearts. I guarantee it. It's in mine, right? The calling of the follower of Jesus is to live under the rule and reign of God and in some way, shape, or form work to get free of that, right? This is the calling. And I hope over the next few weeks uh, we can process that together. We can process that together. All right? All right. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask, Lord that you would uh, point out in our own hearts those ways in which money, resource, things have got their hooks in us. We ask that you would help us to be inspired by the early church, that the Holy Spirit would be uh, in and around us, calling us into a a form of living, a type of life that that is centered around the person of Jesus and is unimaginably generous, not because of anything other than the fact of who Jesus is and the fact that in the person of Jesus, God was unimaginably generous towards us. That in the person of Jesus, we see a God of unlimited generosity and love. And inspired by that move, we are a generous people a people that are inspired towards generous living. Jesus, would you help us to not be slaves to ourselves, slaves to our culture, slaves to our own desires, but rather free to live and serve the kingdom of God as it is built in our midst, in our community, through our very hands. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. You can go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, hey, one more thing. Uh, membership class up at in, we'll say, 20 minutes. All right? All right. Thanks.